0: We'll talk with founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and really some of the most interesting people of our time. Can't wait to get started. Let's go. Let's go. Hi, everyone. It's Kara Golden from The Kara Golden Show, and I'm so excited to have my next wonderful entrepreneur with us today. So Sabina Lada, who is the founder and CEO of depending on how you pronounce it. Do or dough <laughs> foods. Or uh, dough. <laughs> doe. Dough foods for sure, uh, but spelled kind of like D-E for those of you who haven't tried it, or have been living in Iraq whatever it's uh, this amazing amazing product uh DEUX so definitely definitely check it out so uh it's a gluten-free uh vegan cookie dough that you can actually just go and sneak a snack from she was luck or I was lucky enough to actually be able to Try it for the first time, and have purchased it since then. It's so so good. The favorite flavor is definitely birthday cake, and it's, uh, it's a good one. Yeah, it's so so good. So it's got all kinds of immunity supporting ingredients to it too. So it's not just uh, the typical cookie dough that maybe you're you're accustomed to sneaking a few pieces here and there from before founding Doe, Sabina worked as a marketing analyst for PepsiCo. And actually, we met, actually, PepsiCo and Diamond Foods, we met from Alyssa, who used to work at Hint, uh, was our VP of marketing at one point. And so she had connected us. And uh, really, really grateful for that conversation and that connection. And similar to my story of founding it in my kitchen, uh, that's Sabina's story as well. She founded it in her kitchen uh, in October of 2020, not too long ago, after really seeing this need in probably her own life, but then also seeing that she could do something better. So uh, she started it on Instagram and started taking pain payments um, on Instagram, which I think is so, so cool through Venmo. And and, uh, just in six months, I mean, just totally blew up the business and was confident enough to go and try out for that little show, Shark Tank. Uh, We will get into that uh, as well and kind of hear Savina's experience and just overall her entrepreneurial journey. Because I think, as you all know, just learning from other people's experience on how they were thinking about things, uh, what fears they had, all of those kind of things are really what just make us know that we can. And so I'm so excited to have Sabina on the show today and so that we can learn a little bit more. So welcome.
1: Thanks, Kara. What an
0: intro. I'm so excited to be here. Super, super excited. So, So tell us a little bit about Sabina, little Sabina. So did you always know that you were going to be working and initially as an analyst inside of a large Pepsi, you know, large company in the beverage industry. Uh, Did you always think you were going to be an entrepreneur? Tell me a little bit about sort of where your head was at.
1: Well, it's funny because I never thought I would be an entrepreneur. But now that I look back at how I was as a kid, like breaking rules and always wanting something better, those are clear skill sets and kind of personality traits of an entrepreneur um which i really got from my dad so my dad was the og entrepreneur he um moved to america in 1975 and didn't have much of an education so he was an entrepreneur so he he wasn't doing it necessarily because he got to do it like i you know am privileged enough to get to do it he was doing it cuz he kind of had to do it so he started out driving a cab he started Working at a deli. Um, and then he saved up enough money to buy a convenience store in Fort Worth, in Texas. And that was kind of the culmination of his American dream. And so it kind of, you know, like ran in my blood. But in food and beverage, you kind of look back at your childhood and you think about the types of foods you had. And I know, Kara, you had a, an experience with diet sodas. And so similar. To you growing up in this era where big food was producing a lot of junk food, a lot of fake sugars, um, Oreos were king and Kraft mac and cheese was king. Um, That's what I ate as a kid. So I was, you know, in and out of my dad's convenience store every Saturday and I would get to pick two snacks and I would usually pick like some sort of Frito Lay product and, you know, like honey buns or some sort of like sugary, refined sugar filled with kind of bad for you ingredients, I would I would usually pick those. So that's how I ate growing up. And I actually had kind of a transformation in how I was eating in my young twenties at the same time I was working at PepsiCo. And that was kind of the moment I had where I was like, wait, I'm in this industry where I'm selling potato chips and and Pepsi and I'm trying to drink kale smoothies and you know do Pilates. It was just such a different such a dichotomy. But yeah, no, I never thought I would be in food and beverage, and I never thought I would honestly go back to food and beverage 10 years later.
0: (laughs) So, How often have you thought about learning a new language only to be stopped by that memory of yours from the last time you tried to learn a language when it didn't go so well? Okay, maybe it wasn't a language that you were interested in learning, or perhaps all those poorly written textbooks in your sixth grade class weren't that well written after all. I have a great tip for you. It's called Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program around, available on desktop or app. No matter where you choose to learn it or what platform you choose to learn on, Rosetta Stone works and it truly immerses you in the language you choose to learn, quicker and easier than you ever imagined to. Maybe you're getting ready to travel abroad this summer and you want to learn a bit of Portuguese, let's say, before your trip. Rosetta Stone can help. I know this firsthand as I did just this before traveling to Portugal last year. I learned Portuguese through Rosetta Stone, and by doing so, I not only got a better grasp of the spoken language of Portugal, but it got me very excited for the trip itself before I went. They even have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation as you are learning, too. They've got you covered. Rosetta Stone's trusted experts are the real deal. They've been helping people just like you for over 30 years, helping millions of people to learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and my favorite, Portuguese. The lessons are five to 10 minutes long and include practical exercises so that you can pick up the language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. No English translations either, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in the language you are focused on, helping you get the long-term retention you are looking for. And who wouldn't want that? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Kara Golden Show listeners can get In today's world, which I will admit can at times seem filled with too much of the wrong information, it's essential to find a good source that truly gets to the heart of what I want to know. I am super excited about our next sponsor, as I've been a big fan of their content for some time now. That sponsor is The Washington Post. Their depth on topics from business to tech isn't just impressive. to subscribe for just $0.50 per week for your first year. That's 80% off their typical offer. So this is truly a steal. Once again, that's WashingtonPost.com backslash Kara Golden to subscribe for just $0.50 per week for your first year. Funny, That's, uh, that's wild. So you studied supply chain management. And of course, you didn't study supply chain management during or right before or right after the pandemic. I mean, that's probably like the oh hottest thing today, right? That everybody's trying to figure out. <laughs> trying to and, figure out, yeah. And, and uh, certainly wasn't a bad thing to know quite a bit about. But how did you think, like why supply chain management? How did you, what got you most interested in that early on?
1: Yeah, I know it's so specific. Um, I actually wanted, so because my parents are immigrants, It was difficult to have kind of a non-traditional path. So I was very interested in fashion. I just wanted to be in the fashion space. And I still, it's kind of interesting. We work with a lot of fashion influencers and fashion celebrities with dough, even though it's completely unrelated, but food and fashion kind of have a nice synergy sometimes. But when I was younger, when I was in high school, I was like, I want to be in fashion. My freshman year of college, I wanted to be in fashion. And I was like, how can I get a job in fashion but not have my parents kind of you know flip out or be like, what are you doing with your life? And my route was supply chain because I learned that buyers in fashion, so at the big kind of big box Bloomingdale's and Bergdorf's, buyers were had a supply chain background and they were kind of focused on the operations of the product. And so I thought, okay, if I get a supply chain management background, I can kind of maneuver my way into buying at a fashion company.
0: I love it. I love it. I mean, so forward thinking, like kind of backdooring your way into kind of a different... You'd still be around fashion, but you were doing, I mean, really, really innovative in so many ways. So I I love it. I love how you were thinking about it, not the traditional way. And so then you got your first role as as we talked about it, Pepsi and... I've heard for years they have such an amazing training program. Actually, going in to uh, learn so many different aspects. What do you think was like the key thing that surprised you? And and when you first started working, like what was kind of when you think back on on you know when you were getting a job at Pepsi, you were an analyst there. What did you think like you were gonna be doing, or or what was kind of the most surprising thing about it?
1: Yes. Yeah, so there were two things that surprised me. And one was, at least in the marketing department, the marketers who were marketing the products were not actually consumers of the products. So it was so interesting that everyone on my team was actually very similar to me that would like take spin classes and they were trying to eat healthy and they would have salads for lunch and they weren't the the target market. And so I think to your point about it being a really good training ground. I think it was such a good training ground because you have to market something you're not a consumer of. So if you can market something that you're not a consumer of, then you you sure as hell can market something that you are a consumer of, right? And it's all about learning those consumer insights. So that was kind of the first thing that surprised me. And then the second thing was actually how entrepreneurial it was there. And I, I joked that I was an entrepreneur for a lot of my early careers because I was obviously at these big major... Corporations, but I was able to be entrepreneurial because I had these sponsors and, and these people that I worked for that allowed me to do that. And that's something, you know, I always try to do for my team as well. It's like, you know, you work for a company, but you are an entrepreneur. And so I had this VP named Rom, and he was my first VP. He ended up being the CMO of lay and now is the CEO of a PepsiCo business unit. So He's still there but he always would kind of whisper to me to break the rules and so and that would that's like in my nature that's in an entrepreneur's nature like you you have to break some rules um and so I think that kind of allowed I already had that entrepreneurial spirit in me but he specifically and there were a couple of other sponsors that I worked for that allowed me to kind of be entrepreneurial and kind of hone that skill set and then when I went off on my own it actually wasn't as scary because I felt I had done it for obviously with a safety net, but it was much less scary than, than if I hadn't had that kind of convincing to kind of break some rules.
0: I love it. That's so great. So you left and went into McKinsey and decided to go the consulting route. What it's actually really interesting. I feel like, again, you sort of paved your own way. Oftentimes you go from consulting into a brand, into right? Yeah. I love it. And what did you learn from going into a consultant. Yeah, so that I joke that I
1: did my MBA at McKinsey because you learn so quickly and you're on these projects for call it 6, 12 weeks at a time. So your ramp up period, you literally have to learn an entire industry and call it a week and then after that you have to start giving recommendations. So you kind of have this this skill set of picking something up really quickly and when you're doing, I mean, you know this so well, when you start your own company, you don't know a lot. And so you kind of are, you have to be able to understand and kind of go really deep, really fast on a problem or a topic and then act on it pretty quickly. And there's not a lot of time to make make decisions, right? So I think learning that speed and, and almost that like turnover of understanding a problem, going really deep on it, and then being able to take action from it is something that consulting really teaches you. And honestly, being able to get out of CPG for a little while was nice. Um, So I worked on, on everything from like medical waste management to telco and media to luxury cars. And that I felt a little pigeonholed when I was in CPG. So it kind of it kind of gave you that, not just that depth, but that breadth really quickly of here are 10 different industries that you're thrown into. Because I was I was a little scared being in CPG. I was like, I know my path. I'm going to become, you know, a director and then a senior director and then a VP and then I'm going to be the CMO. And then like, I'm going to die as a CMO of a CPG company. <laughs> um, and so I I appreciated McKinsey that it, that it just gave you that variety.
0: Yeah. Well, I love that too, because I think that understanding really, look, your curiosity really helped you to be able to work across broad industries. But something that I think that being in consulting helps you do is that you are working with different types of companies too. And, and I think that the best innovation and disruption comes from really understanding multiple industries. It's always been funny to me when I started Hint, it was. I came from the tech industry and people were like, wait, I don't get it. Like coming from tech and coming into, you know, the beverage industry. But, you know, now it really seems like the most innovative ideas today are the ones that are, and companies are really the ones that kind of think differently. I mean, Steve Jobs coined that term, I guess, but it's like, it really is true. I mean, you're not, you know, Warby Parker, they're not coming from Lexotica, right? They're coming from a totally different industry and they're adding different components from different industries in. So I think that, you know, working in a consulting company, we actually had the president of uh, McKinsey on here not really talking about consulting roles in particular, but about culture. And, um, you know, she was really talking about culture across different industries and what they were seeing. And anyway, it was just fascinating to me. And they really do kind of have the pot, so to speak, of all these different industries. So really, really cool experience for sure. So Doe was born, I mean it wasn't, it was born during the pandemic, but you were thinking about it before the pandemic started, obviously, right? I mean, you were really...
1: Well, I was thinking about, it's funny, because I was thinking about, and I'm sure you beforehand had a hundred different ideas, because you, if if your mind is, if you are entrepreneurial, you kind of always have an idea because you see problems everywhere and you're like, oh, like I could, should I start a company to fix that problem? Or is that market big enough? And so... I had actually tested a couple of ideas before dough, but truly when I was taking, and I don't know if you did this, but I took a ton of supplements during the pandemic. So I would take, you know, zinc and elderberry and vitamin C and those like lithospheric gels that taste like so horrible. <laughs> um, but all of it as kind of immunity horsepower, right? To like build my body just as insurance versus. Covid, whether or not it worked, it was making me feel like I was doing something um, and and getting my body healthier in case I did get it. And the experience of taking that many supplements um, and it's funny because the supplement industry is a giant industry, right? And we, everyone in my age group, I would say millennial females, takes you know a fistful of supplements every morning, (laughs) whatever different types it is. Your probiotics, your turmeric, whatever. And I was taking those supplements, and I was getting a ton of heartburn. I was getting them stuck in my throat. I was like, this is like a horrible experience. Why can't I have a real food supplement where I'm not just like taking down these pills and it's an actual food? So the original concept was actually like a famous Amos cookie that got all of your vitamins in one tiny bite. And I went down that path and kind of explored the cookie category and I did not want to touch it with a 10 foot wall because there are so many cookie. There are so many brands. There's a ton of innovation in it. Everyone's already doing a vegan, gluten-free enhanced adaptogenic version of it. And so I was like, it is, re- it will be really difficult to, and where we started direct to consumer, but we knew that we wanted to go into retail and re and retails the wild, wild West. So I was like, there's no way in whole foods, I'd be able to compete in that category. So that's when i started looking at the cookie dough category and specifically edible cookie dough because it is kind of this comforting like eating it straight from the jar or kind of naughty you're not supposed to do it product and you know nestle and pillsbury own 85% of that category right like it's been virtually untouched and the and the ingredients in that category are you know refined sugars and animal byproducts and just wasn't really modernized for our consumer and specifically a millennial and Gen Z female. And we had left that category. Like The last time I bought Toll House was call it 10, 15 years ago, maybe. And so you, it's this category that a lot of consumers had left. So that's what I thought was interesting too, is like, I'm not trying to go into something and steal share from other brands that are already there. I'm really going in and bringing in a new consumer that left that category 10, 15 years ago um, and kind of bringing, bringing consumers back into a category that they, they've they now gone to like sexy ice cream or whatever other products that they've gone to. So I decided to launch it on Instagram. And that was kind of my first test. We didn't have a website. We took orders on direct message and we got paid through Venmo. And that was the first kind of proof point when we sold out like this. I was like, oh, sh- There is really something here.
0: That's amazing. And so, you know, you mentioned it that you launched it on Instagram. Like, how fast was it for you to be able to do that to launch a store? Yeah.
1: So I concepted it in like May, June, worked on the product, and then we did our first drop on Instagram in August. So I will say it's a combination of you had a lot more free time during COVID, right? You're at home on weekends and not really doing much. And so, I was able to kind of spend way more time on it than I would have because we were quarantined. And then two was, I. someone once told me that you should go to market with a product that you're embarrassed by. And if you're not embarrassed by it, you're not doing it fast enough. And I was fully embarrassed.
0: I think that's <laughs> of, like, so the true. Yeah. <laughs>
1: it was like horrible packaging. I like the printing was like off. It, the colors were so bad. Like it was... The communication on the pack was horrible. It was in a peanut butter jar. I was really embarrassed of that product. But I wanted to see if people wanted the product before I invested $20,000 in a brand and a website and packaging and, you know, commercial kitchen. And so that's when I started, similar to you, started making it at home in, you know, this kind of janky, if you will, packaging. But when I found out people actually wanted it, that's when I was like, okay, let's build the brand now versus preemptively building a brand and finding a co-packer and then sitting on a bunch of product at my house.
0: Do you know what that sound means? It's the sound of another sale on Shopify, this episode's sponsor. Shopify is the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify is more than a store. It's a way to connect with customers, drive sales, and manage the day-to-day. Whether you are a seasoned founder or just starting out, Shopify gives you everything you need to know to help your company succeed. Shopify is the best when it comes to e-commerce. Everyone I know uses Shopify as the back end of their online store. In fact, Shopify powers over 1.7 million businesses from first sale to full scale. With Shopify, you can reach customers online and across every major social network too, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and more. The best part is the data Shopify provides. Gain insights as you grow with detailed reporting of conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond. Go to shopify.com/kara for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. That's Shopify.com/Kara. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to Shopify.com/Kara right now. No, I love hearing that. I mean, one of the chapters in my book that I wrote was fly the plane as you're building it, right? It's like, you know, I always tell people it's never going to be perfect, right? You can always make improvements to your product, whether it's the actual what's inside the jar or on the packaging or whatever. And you should always feel like you have room for improvement too. So gone are the days where I feel like so often, even in you know the large companies, they'll launch something and then basically they'll just leave it there. Right? Yeah. And I think for entrepreneurs, no iteration. No iteration. And I think for entrepreneurs today, it's just, it's totally acceptable. I mean, in many ways, that's what I grew up in in the tech industry, that it was like, you know, call it 2.0 or upgrades or whatever. It's kind of the same thing, that it was that. Thinking. And so that was what was probably so surprising to me coming into the beverage industry that I just saw that so clearly. But other people who had been living in this industry for so long just didn't see it that way. So it's really interesting to hear you talk about that. So, did you? So, you had this initial test. How did you know that the test was successful? That's another thing. Like, how do you know? I hear this from entrepreneurs a lot. Like, they're like, I launched it how do you know that it's worth going out and getting investors or getting more stores and taking it further?
1: Yeah, so it was interesting because I went in between McKinsey and launching Doe. I was at a VC firm called M13 here in LA. And I essentially built the Launchpad, which was our venture studio. So we, one side of the house, invested in consumer and consumer tech brands. And then the side of the house that I owned launched brands from within. So we had built this entire playbook on how to launch a brand and what are the metrics that get you from the testing phase to the scaling phase. So the four phases we kind of outlined were ideate, test, scale, and then accelerate. And so, or sorry, launch and then accelerate. And so those four phases are every entrepreneur goes through those phases, right? They might not like call them that, but we, we codified it a little bit because we're at a venture firm and we studied our portfolio companies and then the companies that we launched and essentially had, this is a little scientific. It's like, you have these kind of metrics that you look at, whether it's conversion rate growth in, you know, social media followers, things like NPS score, there's one specific thing that we, we made sure to ask on our NPS survey was, would you be disappointed if this product didn't exist? And it was like a sliding scale. And that is the founders of superhuman say that that is the number one metric of kind of product market fit. And then obviously for food and beverage, there's a, there's a couple of other things that you want to ask to get those consumer insights. But that part was very scientific. The part that I hadn't kind of come up with. Was the qualitative piece of consumers messaging you or influencers trying to get their hands on it or almost this like this like organic PR and buzz that you're building especially on digital because during covid everything was online on Clubhouse on Instagram and on TikTok and so that part is almost this like gut feeling That is hard to explain, but almost like a when you know, you know, like there's something here. And so those two, this like consumer intuition paired with almost these data points that I had used in my past, those two was when I knew and obviously like selling out a product in 30 minutes, you're like, okay, like there's something here. And then you just have to get over your fear and your insecurities of, of actually moving forward because you kind of have the, um, you know, a little bit of imposter syndrome initially, even when the data is saying, do this, you're like, should I? Like, I don't
0: know. Yeah, no, absolutely. And especially when you're thinking that maybe your packaging isn't exactly what you want and all of these questions remain. There's always going to be questions. So, so did you seek out, did you get investors as well early on? Or how did you think about that?
1: Yeah. So I, I put my money where my mouth was initially. So I invested 20K of my own money and I launched it, direct to consumer, and then got it into Air One Markets here in LA, which is seven stores now. And um, But those, and that was my first kind of like retail test to see how we did in retail, but initially kind of was building this profitable business. And then it got to a point we were making in, in commercial kitchens. And so it got to a point where we were bursting out of our commercial kitchens and, I was making until three in the morning, and then I would fulfill orders at seven in the morning. And that, for anyone, is not sustainable. <laughs> and you kind of like have to figure out at what point you're going to take the leap and move to a co-packer, which of course is a big investment on its own. So that's when, only when I was bursting out of those commercial kitchens, that's when I was like, okay, I need to find a co-packer. Um, I need to raise a little bit of money for working capital because you know your first run is a hundred thousand dollars, and then I raised, um, I raised a million dollars in April of this past year. So raised funds to kind of scale and have working capital. And then as well, retail is much more expensive than direct-to-consumer <laughs> um, and it, it requires a different, it's just a different ball game. And so raised money to expand into retail as well. So we've been kind of growing that side
0: of the business. That's awesome. That's so great. And I read somewhere where you recently raised a million dollars and and seed money to really even get more traction. I think it's especially interesting to me knowing that you had been at Pepsi, you know, you worked in venture, you had seen a lot of different deals. And, you know, you're you're really you're being scrappy. I mean, you're, you know, you really, you can go do it. You don't need to go and raise a ton of money. And that shouldn't be in your way of going and getting some traction out there. Cause I always believe too, that if you can go get traction, the money will be there, the money will end up being there and you can get it at much better rates and, and, uh,
1: No, that's exactly, um, that's kind of exactly what, so when I had, when I raised, I had six months of data. And so it took me honestly one week to raise $1 million. Whereas a lot of my peers were like, you know, I've been raising for two, three months. I like, I can't close this round. And truly it's because we had six months of data saying people want this product. And I think that's something that people struggle with is they have a deck and they're like, I want to raise money off of this deck but they don't have a product or they haven't made a dollar yet to justify that valuation or, or justify anything really. And so I think that's where it's been a little bit easier on me to raise money is because we had, you know, we were scrappy early on and had the proof points um, before, you know, it wasn't just showing someone a pretty picture being like, I want to make this product.
0: I love it. No, that's, that's such valuable advice for people. Cause I think that they always think like, that I've got to go out and raise a ton of money and I think initially there's so many more ways to do it and you're right it is more expensive to get into retail stores but I think also if you can show your turns if you can show you know start somewhere show your turns yes. not only in the retail space but you've been able to show it on digital as well you have a great understanding of cost of acquiring a customer and loyalty to that can all of those things I think are really really valuable and I think if nothing else you're also going to have investors that are going to want to learn from you right they want to be partnered with you in some way where they're going to you know really want to understand your journey and and sort of what you've learned about this so such such amazing advice there. So we cannot end the show without talking about Shark Tank. So your episode just (laughs) aired and uh, so exciting. So tell us all about that. How did that come about? Yeah. So
1: they actually reached out, a producer actually reached out to me pretty early on. So they reached out in January of this past year, which mind you, I was still in a commercial kitchen making the product myself (laughs) at that time. And I worked with them through July and I filmed in July. Um, but it's interesting because when you go through that process, you don't actually know where you are in the process. It's a little kind of opaque in that sense. So, and honestly, you're trying to run a business at the same time. So it's actually quite a bit of work. Like I think I spent over a hundred hours on prepping and getting financials together and doing a business checklist and talking with the Shark Tank team, you know, creating your pitch, figuring out what your set behind me, I've got my entire set. So um, figuring out what your set's going to look like and kind of going back and forth on, and iterating on it. it actually takes you see six minutes of it on television, but it's so much work that goes into it. And even when you film, you don't actually know if and when that you'll air. So you may not ever air. And so that's kind of a, a risk for a gamble that you take. But obviously, I was willing to take it. And I aired a couple of weeks ago, and it has been just a wild whirlwind of an experience. So I say this a lot, but I'm, I'm practicing stoicism a little bit because... In my first year I had really high highs and really low lows. So I'm trying to be a little more even keeled. And Shark Tank had both that high high and that low low because, you know, you get obviously that publicity and you get investor outreach and retailer outreach and your, you know, obviously the revenue that comes with it, which is amazing. But then you also get a lot of kind of unsolicited comments and, you know, Reddit threads and tweets and like all of that stuff that People say like, don't ever read those, but obviously that's, that's easier said than done. And so of course I read all of them, but we did. It's funny because there were, there were quite a few comments that were about my outfit or how I shouldn't have negotiated. And so I did a TikTok about all of those kind of misogynistic comments that I received and that went viral. So that was actually the like biggest outcome from the show was that viral TikTok. Because people were, I think people were floored. I think that the, the the outfit judging was a big thing because no one ever talks about a man's outfit on, on Shark Tank, but I people had a lot to say about my hot pink suit. So. Um, yeah, it was, it's been an interesting like roller coaster since then. <laughs>
0: That's wild. Did you actually get the funding that or did you end up taking the funding? So no.
1: So I got, it was a really dramatic episode. I got an offer from Robert and then I negotiated and then he reneged his offer. So it's a spicy episode. If you haven't seen it, you should watch this episode. Um
0: six, I believe. Oh my God. That's, I can't wait to watch it. So that's amazing. There's so many different ones that I've heard. We had Jiggy on here, which was oh, a yeah, puzzle. Yeah, yeah, And uh, yeah, we've had so many over the years. Uh, so it's a lot of fun to kind of think back and, and, you know, frankly, Not all of the ones where it didn't work out are, you know, they're not failures just because the Shark Tank situation didn't actually end up to be the way that maybe they had anticipated or hoped or whatever. It just wasn't the right deal. And they knew their walk away too. Yeah, and I think think
1: it's it's a little tough too when you raised because you also know what your market value is. And so I think there's a little bit of like a, You can kind of tell the difference too of the different types of companies is now they have a, it used to be more like local businesses and mom and pops, and now it's really different. There are some of those, but there are a lot of people who've raised one to $5 million and that's also a different ballgame. So yeah, it's kind of, it's interesting what, what position you're in when you go in there.
0: I love it. So great. Well, thank you so much. Where do people find out more about Sabina and also dough? And, and definitely if they're not in the Los Angeles area, where do they purchase your product?
1: Yes, eatdough.com. So E-A-T-D-E-U-X.com. Um, we've got a ton of stores in New York as well. So West Side Markets, Brooklyn Fair, Foragers, you can go on our website. We've got a store locator. Or you can buy online. We've got two day shipping. So we're pretty quick and follow us on Instagram. I would say our Instagram and our TikTok are wildly entertaining. Our, you know, social media and content manager is amazing. And so we're not just another brand on, on Instagram. We've got, we've got a lot of sass and a lot of wit. So it's E A T D E U X.
0: I love it. So great. Well, thank you so much, Sabina. And thanks so much for sharing your whole journey. So educational and uh, entertaining and inspirational. So I absolutely love it. And honestly, everybody pick up dough and uh, the drip product is amazing. So definitely pick it up. And I can't wait to see what more you guys do as well. So I'll be so excited to... Watch your journey continue to expand and thanks everyone for listening. We're here every Monday and Wednesday and. Please, 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 if you haven't subscribed, definitely subscribe. Give this episode five stars on any of the platforms that you listen to The Kara Golden Show on. And if you haven't picked up a copy of my book, um, which I can't believe came out a year ago now, which is just... I
1: highly recommend it. <laughs> Thank you.
0: So crazy, but uh, definitely pick up a copy and I hope you'll Follow me on social media at Kara Golden with an I and let me know what you think of the book. And of course, pick up a case of Hint, Hint water or sunscreen or any of the other products that we've done. And uh, hopefully, you guys all have a fantastic rest of the week. So thanks again, Sabina. Thanks, Kara. Before we sign off, I want to talk to you about fear. People like to talk about fearless leaders. But achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness. Successful leaders recognize their fears and decide to deal with them head on in order to move forward. This is where my new book, Undaunted, comes in. This book is designed for